Hello, everyone. Michael here. I'm excited for you to listen to this interview I did with Ted Shimmer. Uh, I received an email, actually, from his publisher more than a year ago asking if I would be interested in talking to Ted about his book regarding pornography addiction and the reality and possibility of healing. I immediately said yes, and what surprised me is his publisher emailed me back almost immediately, and she told me, very few people are willing to talk about this on their podcasts. Now, I actually asked Ted about that on this episode, so I'll let you hear his response. But I want you to know my reason for doing the episode, because you, like the publisher, may be surprised that I'm talking about this on the podcast. Now, in my line of work, I have walked with countless couples through porn addiction. Uh, I've worked, walked with countless people, individuals, through porn addiction. In my personal life, I've seen several people I deeply love wreck their life because of porn addiction. And I cannot tell you the pain that I have seen this cause in so many lives and in so many families. And with that in mind, what's been fascinating to me is how in recent years, I've heard some Christians, especially those in more progressive spaces, talk about porn as though it should be normalized. And at the very same time they're saying that, people like John Mayer, yes, that John Mayer, the musician, Russell Brand, who I refer to on the podcast, Billie Eilish, and then magazines like GQ, Time, uh, The Guardian, UK, and then research that is in no way remotely faith-based. All of them are saying, you need to stop looking at porn. It's ruining your brain. Uh, it's ruining your ability to be intimate. It's ruining your sex life. And so I look at these two perspectives and I wonder, why are there so many people who identify as progressive Christians out there either ignoring the subject or worse, talking about its use being normal? I, I even heard one person refer to responsibly sourced porn. And I just wonder, what's happening in this conversation? And so those are just a couple of reasons uh, why I asked Ted to be on the podcast. Now, He's honestly probably one of the most conservative people I've had on the podcast, but the work he is doing is so deeply important. So with that, my hope is, is that you will enjoy episode 84 of the Changing Faith podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Today, we have with us Ted Shimmer. He is the founder of The Freedom Fight, which is an online pornography addiction recovery program. He is trained as a pastoral sex addiction professional, and he brings a unique and grounded approach to addiction recovery, one that is biblically based, it's scientifically grounded, gospel-centered, and it's proven effective. Ted and his wife, Amber, have four adult children, and he lives in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where he joins with us today. Ted, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Hey, Michael. It's good to be with you. Appreciate you having me on. Of course. Well, I always ask the first question of our guests, and that is, what would you like our listeners to know about you? Well, I'm, I uh, met and married my wife uh, in college at a campus ministry, um, you know, that we were both involved in. And um, man, it was, um, you know, a great, great first meeting and, you know, kind of continued on from there. We, we both 
um, you know, had a heart to, you know, grow in our faith at that point and, you know, joined, you know, staff uh, with the ministry that we were involved in. And, you know, a lot of people go, you know, hey, so you're in the ministry, but, you know, you're kind of become this porn guy that, you know, <laughs> uh, so how does that work? You know, and, uh, you know, I tell people, you know, I didn't enter the ministry kind of with that vision, but, uh, you know, so for us, it was really something that in the mid early 2000s, man, we just started seeing this, this massive uptick in the number of students who were struggling. And, you know, we realized, hey, we're either going to have to find solutions, you know, to help students, or we're going to have this massive hole in our discipleship. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's really what kind of, you know, started our deep dive into this topic. It's fascinating that you connected it to discipleship. Uh, I have a friend, and you you said you've read his book, Michael Cusick, who does a lot of work around sex addiction and recovery. Yeah. And he said to me once that he's convinced that the gospel will only be able to go as far as our willingness to talk about and confront sex addiction in our culture. Huh. Yeah. How, how would you respond to that? Yeah. You know, what we have seen is that addressing this issue has been you know, an incredible way to have deep discipleship because it really does address just some of the deep issues of the heart. Um, and so, you know, and that's one of my prayers for this topic, Michael, is that the church would move it from just being a recovery issue, that, okay, you got problems, you need to go to recovery, and make it a discipleship issue. This is such a huge, massive issue with huge implications that we all need to be better equipped for ourselves and also so we can help others find freedom. And, and you know, a pornography addiction is not an easy addiction to break. And one of the things that we talk about is that you don't just quit porn, but you must outgrow porn because mm. you have to grow and develop in key areas of your life, uh, you know, in order to find that lasting freedom. And, and so we've, you know, it's really been incredible just the, the number of students, you know, have found freedom. They're just different people at the end of that process. And what, how would you define pornography or sex addiction? And are they even the same thing? Well, like a, a pornography addiction and a sex addiction? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, they would definitely be, be classified together, just that, um, you know, a compulsion to use, and, you know, addiction experts will tell us this, and this is important for people to understand that, you know, people may get into the activity, you know, because of curiosity. Then they may return because of pleasure that, man, hey, that dopamine hit that I got. Uh, but an addiction is really birthed and goes to a whole new level when somebody starts using the high, the dopamine high they get from their substance, whether that's alcohol, drugs, or porn, when they start using that high to medicate the negative emotions in their life. And so as an example, if somebody starts using porn to medicate the stress or the loneliness, then all of a sudden that emotion actually becomes the trigger. Hmm. Uh, Because most people realize, you know, okay, dopamine's released when we experience something pleasurable, But most people don't understand that dopamine is also released in the anticipation of pleasure. 
And so when, if a person's been using porn to medicate stress, for instance, then all of a sudden stress becomes the trigger. So next time they, they experience stress, the brain will release dopamine to start the craving. Hey, I know where we can go to feel a whole lot better because the brain moves into relief mode. And, you know, a lot of guys will tell me, well, man, this urge to use porn just hit me out of nowhere. But when we go back and look at what led to it, it's invariably uh, an emotional trigger, you know, that led to the process. And so when a person starts using their substance to medicate and numb out and cope, um, man, that is when an addiction is birthed. And, um, and, you know, and that usually happens at the subconscious level. You know, mm-hmm. guys don't realize, oh, man, the reason I keep having these cravings is, man, I'm, I keep medicating my negative emotions and, you know, discomforts of life. Hmm. I, I, I shared with you before we started recording that when I was in college, I went to a, a party at the University of Dayton in Ohio, so state school, secular university, and the apartment where we were going, a group of us walked in, guys and girls, and there were three guys in the apartment that were watching a porno on the TV, and they shut it off. I mean, there, there was this kind of this awkward laughter. It was like their mom had walked in and caught them. And they apologized, and then we just got on with whatever we were going to do that night. Fast forward 15 years, I'm now here in Denver, and one of the things that I was surprised to learn is that that level of, whether it was embarrassment that, that I witnessed in these guys in college is kind of evaporated among a lot of people. Uh, and you work with college students. So I'm curious, what is it, what, what's made it so normative and normal in our world today? Well, you know, I just think it's the, the, the access is just, it's so available. Um, and so, you know, I just think that's, that's changed the culture. It's changed, you know, I had a, a guy telling me that I'm working with right now is one of, one of the groups that I lead. And he said, as a fifth grader, he and his friends were making fun of the one fifth grader guy that admitted he had never seen porn. And they were like, dude, you got to go home. Here's, here's the website you got to look at. And they were like, you know, and this was, you know, 12 years ago when he was a fifth grader. And and so, you know, it's, it's, it's just different because of the amount uh, of pornography. And, and, and that's one of the things, Michael, that I think a lot of, uh, you know, people, particularly people our age, older, that they don't understand because they'll be like, well, man, you know, every generation has to deal with porn. You know, it's just around. But what most people don't realize is today's porn is, is way different. Before 2006, most of the pornography that was being consumed on the internet was photographs. You know, Mm. there was, there were videos, but because it was dial up, it took forever to download. So what most people were looking at were photographs. Well, when, when high speed internet came in 2006, the ability to watch an endless buffet of hardcore videos became possible, you know, right there, you know, on the computer. And then in 07 with the iPhone, now everybody has their own, you know, personalized porn theater in their pocket or purse. Um, mm. And just, you know, the widespread nature of it, um, you know, has just, you know, changed how people view it. Um, and so, you know, again, you got, 
you know, kids in fifth and sixth grade, they're growing up with it and they're, you know, joking about it and they're talking about it. And, and so, yeah, it's just a, it's just a thing. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it is, it is crazy how quickly things have changed, uh, because of the technology. And am I right to say that the, did I hear you say that it's normal for fifth and sixth graders now? Uh, for a lot of them, it is. Um, you know, the statistic, one of the statistics I, I share in my book that, you know, there's two different studies that say one says the, the first age of exposure is eight. Another says the oh my God. You know, first age of exposure is 11. Um, but one of the interesting things is that for minors, those under 18 who are watching porn, 22% of that is 10 and under which is crazy to think about. Um, I was on a, a radio program last week, and the mom, a mom you know, called in, uh, one of the listeners, and she told about the, you know, gave the, the story of finding out that their 10-year-old daughter was addicted to porn and had been for 10 months. And she caught her one night after she had watched 10 hardcore porn videos. You know, and it's like, man, I never thought of my 10-year-old daughter uh, struggling with this. And, you know, the mm. daughter told the mom that, mom, I hate looking at this, but I can't quit. And, you know, just the, uh, the dopamine high grabbed her and hooked her. And it's, it's very powerful. Now you, you just use an example of a 10 year old daughter. Pornography stereotypically, maybe it might be the word to use is, is connected to with men. Are you seeing as well a an uptick or a um, greater number of women as well? Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, and related to the shame, uh, you know, if you were to look at women under thirty struggle with porn, or maybe they don't struggle with porn, but they use porn uh, much at a much higher level than women thirty and older. Um, and so again, the technology piece, you know, there's just so many more 10 year old girls that have been hooked. Um, and it just becomes, you know, part, part of their, their background, you know, and I, I meet parents all the time who tell me, you know, their kid in college, you know, Hey, just told them, Hey mom, dad, I've been addicted to porn since sixth grade. You know, I never told you. And, you know, and, you know, that, that story, I've, you know, I've heard, you know, tons of times. And, uh, and so it's not just a man's, you know, struggle and issue. And to be honest, um, you know, that's one of the things that makes it even more shaming for women. You know, there's shame with any addiction, but particularly for a Christian woman who struggles with pornography, um, because, hey, it's supposed to be a man's issue. Uh, and that's one of the things that in the church, you know, if, First of all, it's hardly ever dealt with, and if it is dealt with, it's almost only mentioned in context of men, which only adds more shame to the women. You you, you use the word shame, and I, I, I had one of the questions I wanted to ask is about shame because you address this in your book, The Freedom Fight. Uh, I'm curious. Um, th- there's been a, I grew up in the church, and there was always so much shame around talk of sex, sexuality. Uh, I can barely remember being in youth group without someone when they would bring up sex. It was almost like you had to crack a joke just to release the tension in the room. And so when you talk about the shame, 
how much of that in your experience and in, in your work comes directly as a result of the church and the way that we've traditionally talked about sex? Yeah. And I, you know, and I think that's, you know, definitely a significant factor. Just, uh, one, the fact that we don't talk about, you know, sex, uh, you know, a lot of times. And so it's this taboo topic that, Hey, we can't talk about it. And so all of a sudden I've got this secret that I don't feel the freedom to, to share. Um, and so it's so important, you know, for parents to de-shame the topic. Um, and you know, it's so important because bottom line is, is the world is going to fill in the blanks for our kids when it comes to sex, when it comes to porn, you know, all those things. And then if parents, spiritual leaders aren't taking initiative to fill in those blanks with, Hey, what does healthy sex look like? What is a biblical healthy sex? And, um, because when that topic is off, off, um, you know, is taboo and it's, you know, out of bounds, then, People aren't going to feel the freedom to share if they struggle in that area. And so it really does multiply, you know, the shame because of that. Yeah, I, I, I had a guest on a couple of years ago. I think to this day it's the most listened to episode of, of the podcast. And she used the term sex positive gospel, that this is something our bodies are hardwired for. And how do we begin speaking about it positively would, do you have an example of, for those listening, um, whether it's for themselves, whether it's for relationships with friends or siblings or even parents and children, how do we even begin to take a step toward this idea of a positive, uh, what does she call it, sex-positive gospel? Well, and I, and I think that's a, yeah, and I think that's an important, you know, point. And I, and I think that's why addressing this porn topic is such a great opportunity for parents, for the church, uh, to really show the relevance of God's word and the power of the gospel. So as an example, this is something that I did with my son. Um, in 2016, there was an article that came out in Time Magazine. I shared this with you before. Um, April, uh, if you want to read the article, April uh, 2016, the cover story was why young men who grew up on internet porn are becoming advocates for turning it off. Hmm. And if you read the article, it's about all these guys that are in their 20s that have porn-induced erectile dysfunction. And they're like, why didn't anybody tell us that porn was going to ruin our sex life? And, you know, the, the article shared that before 1992, you know, before the internet, only 5% of men under 40 uh, struggled with ED. In 2014, the research showed that it was 33%. One in, think about that, one in three men under 40 struggle with ED. I've, seen a, a, I've seen a study from uh, 2018 that puts it uh, in the 40s, in the low 40s. And this isn't just 20-somethings. We're seeing teenagers as young as 15 who struggle with porn-induced ED. And, you know, that's one example of the negative effects of pornography that most people don't talk about. And I remember one you know, day having a conversation with my son. I showed him the, the cover of that you know, magazine. We talked about it. We looked at that passage, and we just talked about, man, 
those who watch porn are less sexually satisfied than those who don't. You know, that's what the research shows. Those who watch porn have less satisfying marriages. They have less sex than the married couple. Man, porn promises the sexual satisfaction, and yet it takes away the ability to enjoy it, which is what Jesus said, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's like, you know, who knew that visual lust was going to have all these negative consequences? It's like, well, Jesus knew 2,000 years ago because this is what he said. Uh, And so all of a sudden, this book that seems old and ancient all of a sudden just became very relevant for a very modern issue. Um, hmm. And so, you know, but back to your point, the, the sex positive that Jesus came that we might have an abundant life. And so I think, you know, when, when we don't talk about, you know, this topic and frame it, you know, with, hey, the science, and hey, let's look at the data, and hey, let's hold that up to what the Bible says, and all of a sudden, this book becomes, you know, very relevant uh, for today, and so it's, uh, you know, it's been a powerful, you know, tool, even for guys who are skeptics, who are, you know, not even, uh, you know, believers, but to go all of a sudden, well, hey, you know, tell me more about this, you know, um, and so it's been a, been encouraging to see. Mm. You mentioned right before I hit record that this is a seems to be a topic many spiritual leaders wouldn't have, for example, on their podcast, or a topic that many spiritual leaders don't seem to be talking about. Do you have an idea? As to, uh, maybe I'm asking you to speculate on their motivations, but why is that? Why is it that something that those in places like yourself or me we just decide to be quiet about it? Yeah, and, and that's a great question. I have a, a chapter in my book called Pastors and Porn that delves into that topic. Um, and, you know, it's definitely multifaceted. You know, for pastors, I, I refer to two different studies that, you know, put the, you know, the percentage of pastors who struggle with porn with two separate, you know, anonymous surveys at 50% or more. Um, and so, man, if they personally are struggling... That's probably not something they want to, you know, put out there. Um, I think another reason is it, you know, it's a complicated issue. They don't necessarily really have clear solutions. It's like, you know, hey, you know, you just need to be more holy. Man, you know, love Jesus more and quit. You know, that's they don't necessarily, you know, have solutions because, you know, with the technology and the speed at which we've ended up where we are, you know, like the porn-induced erectile dysfunction, man, it's just, man, hammering us. Um, and so I think a lot of people, they know it's a problem. They just, you know, hey, where are the solutions? What's, what's the proper way? Because there's a lot of different philosophies out there. Hey, only address this from the spiritual angle. Hey, more prayer, more accountability, more scripture memory, which all those things are important. You know, but when the Apostle Paul addressed this issue uh, in Ephesians 4, it was a very holistic perspective because he talked about, in that passage, renewing your mind. And he talked about the, the need for an openness and honesty with you know, other believers and the, the, the need to walk out of you know, our new identity in Christ. And, and so it was a very holistic uh, you know, perspective that... 
And, and I think, too, just, you know, when a person deals with this issue, uh, navigating the shame factor is, I think, more challenging than people realize. You know, at a, I was at a church service a couple of years ago. The pastor gave a great message uh, talking about sexual immorality, which in the Greek, that word, of course, is pornea, where we get the word porn. And he was like, hey, if this is something you struggle with, we have some groups that can help, and you can sign up at the booth in the back. It's like, <laughs> you know, how many people do you think signed up at the booth in the back? <laughs> yeah. You know, no one. And, you know, even if they were to say, hey, come on Wednesday at 7, and you can join one of these groups. Unless you were in crisis, you're not going to go to that group. Because you don't know who else is going to be there, and therefore you don't know who else you're going to be disclosing your embarrassing sin to. Uh, and so as a result, and people are staying in the shadows, and so that's why we have to make it an equipping issue. And we all need to be equipped in this area so we can help others find freedom. Because, you know, as we were talking about the youth and the, and the changes, you know, the first chapter of my book is a tsunami is coming. And when this generation that's been raised on internet porn in the amounts, uh, when they come of age and they are church leaders and they are, you know, having families, if we haven't learned how to help them find freedom, um, man, it's, you know, it's going to be brutal, um, you know, on a lot of different levels. Hmm. Now, one of the things I want to ask, you just used the term purity, and I grew up in the purity movement. I'm sure you've heard of that. And what's interesting to me, and my wife and I have talked a lot about this, there's a lot of critics of purity culture, the purity movement, and the criticisms have largely come around people have felt shamed in that. And I'm wondering, what would you say to that? With this, because for me growing up, I grew up that even if a lustful thought came into my head, that 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 meant that I was bad, or I had a bad thought. Rather than saying, "Man, you're 15, your hormones are raging, these things are going to come and go all the time. Here's how you can respond to that in a healthy way." So, what would you say around that whole subject to, to those who are listening and curious about that? Yeah, and the you know, I wasn't. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, and so I came to Christ right before college. Um, mm. And so I wasn't raised in the in the purity culture. Uh, and so, but I know I know another part of the the shame related to the purity culture, or maybe the letdown piece, is just like, hey, if you stay pure, then man, you're going to be. That means you can be guaranteed this incredible sex in your marriage life. And you know, there's been plenty of people. It's like. Well, hey, I stayed pure, and then I married a guy who happened to be addicted to porn, and man, we didn't have a great marriage, you know. And so, yeah, there's been the the disappointment, uh, the false promise. Uh, obviously, when we follow God's path, that man, there are blessings. There are huge blessings with walking in purity, but we get into trouble when we start saying, "If you do A, you're going to get B," and mm. when we start making those those promises to youth on the front end versus giving them a biblical perspective of holiness, that holiness is not perfection. Holiness is separation, that we want to be separated unto God, away from sin in the world. 
And if, if we don't teach people that pursuing holiness is not about pursuing a list of rules, but it's about pursuing God's best, that, man, I want to enjoy God's best and knowing him more deeply and knowing his plan for my life, and even as we talk about, you know, freedom from pornography, the goal is not freedom. You know, Hebrews 12, 1 says, lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We want to help people find freedom so they can run the race that God has for them, so they can mm-hmm. follow God's purpose for their life. And, and so I think it's important to uh, you know, had the the whole vision out there um, because when we, you know, define purity very narrowly and we, you know, give people expectations of, hey, if you follow this, then you're going to get this, um, you know, we can set people up for disappointment for sure. Yeah. You use the word holiness and I just read and I, at the moment I'm forgetting where, but that the word holiness and the word wholeness come from the same root uh, in its etymology, which is healing. And so this idea of, you know, I grew up in a pretty strict culture, and so holiness was this unattainable thing. But it just, the the idea was, no, no, if you're willing to be, to open yourself up to healing, that's when all these parts of your life that feel disconnected can be integrated into a whole. And that's this idea of holiness, that, that like what you said, it's not, just this obedience to rules, but it's being set apart. At least in the Hebrew mindset, that's what it meant to be used for whatever God has, has, uh, intended for you. Yeah. So, uh, one of the things that, that I really enjoyed, um, and really appreciate is you do take a, 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 what I would call a holistic approach to, to this conversation. And you talk, uh, in your book about the brain and, as I've talked to people over the years, as I've met with people, and I've never pretended to be an expert or a therapist, um, but I've often pointed people toward, you mentioned the Time Magazine article, but there was also an article in GQ Magazine, and it, the title of it was something like, Why You Should Stop Looking at Porn. There was a series of articles uh, out of the UK in the, the Guardian newspaper, and it was really, here's the destruction that pornography is bringing to your brain and your body. Russell Brand, the British comedian, had an incredible uh, video in which he talked about why he wished he had never looked at porn. So I bring that up because these are not, I mean, obviously, it goes without saying, these are not Christian publications. These are not conservative publications. These are coming from the world of of science and psychology and physiology. And and I'm wondering, what can you Tell us about that. You'd already talked a little little bit about dopamine, but what does it do to us at a physiological level? Yeah, well, and you know, and, that, and that's an important you know part for people to understand for a couple of reasons is when people understand that have been addicted to porn, the brain science behind it, it actually is de shaming because mm. now all of a sudden it's just not man. Okay, I'm I'm not just this you know unfixable pervert that man can't quit looking but man there are neurological reasons um that you know i need to address and again you know romans 12 2 says that transformation happens by renewing the mind um and so which you know it's it's interesting the more we we learn in science the more it catches up with the bible because 
It's only been in the last couple of decades that we've learned that, man, when we do something new, a new behavior, the brain forms these new pathways, these new connections. And the more, the more you do something repetitively, the stronger those pathways get. And so, you know, this morning when we got up and we tied our shoe, well, we didn't have to think about it because our brain wants to move things to automation as quickly as possible so it can operate efficiently and it can put its focus elsewhere. And when a person uses pornography and uses it repeatedly, it builds, we build very strong porn pathways in our brain in and when that when that happens and a person wants to you know leave porn behind it's not enough just to uh, repress the old pathways not travel them but we must build new ones uh, hmm. and so one of the things that we teach we teach a tool that when a person is triggered instead of going down that old pathway to medicate you know a negative emotion we teach them to go down a new pathway because if you think about it the old pathway almost always involved moving towards isolation. Hey, I'm going to go to a private place. Yeah. And so we teach, hey, when you're triggered, man, you reach out. Um, you know, the prefrontal cortex, you know, that's the, part, the front part of the brain. Those are our brakes. You know, that's where we have impulse control. That's where we make decisions based on our goals. Um, and this part of the brain, when we've actually, you know, done... Uh, researchers have done you know studies showing that when somebody's using their addictive substance, this part of the brain, like heroin or porn, this part of the brain actually shrinks. The gray matter shrinks. So if you think about it, the brakes start going out. The ability to say no to yourself begins to shrink. It's called hypofrontality. Our brains lock us into bondage, hmm. and you know so. That's one of the things that, you know, has been interesting. It's like, man, these and understanding that part of the addiction, but it does help explain why otherwise godly people who hate their sin and want to leave it behind often can't do it without help. Um, and so and that's that's something that, you know, just that, uh, you know, the brain science piece, you know, has really, really been significant. And so that tool that we teach has really been powerful. We've seen, you know, men that have been addicted for 40 years that using using that um, that tool every time they're triggered to build a new pathway, you know, has made a world of difference. Uh, repetition got you into the addiction. Repetition of a new pathway will help get you out. Um, and so, and again, it's, you know, what Paul was saying 2,000 years ago, that transformation happens by renewing the mind. Okay, I have about probably 17 or 18 questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, first, you you just compared this to heroin. Yeah. Can you can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, well, and, you know, and I, I use it because, you know, one of... One of the ministries we've learned a lot from Pure Desire uh, Ministry, you know, they have shown the brain scans of a brain on heroin and a brain on porn and a healthy brain. And if you look at those three brains, that brain on heroin and the brain on porn look almost identical. Wow. The, as you look at the regions of the brain that are not getting oxygen, aren't getting the blood flow, 
Um, and so, again, it's the front part of the brain. Man, the brakes are going out. We can actually see that, um, you know, in a brain. You know, the encouraging part is when somebody stops their heroin or their porn for a six-month period, guess what? This part of the brain actually starts growing back. And the ability to say no begins to grow back. And so, um, you know, they're understanding the brain science piece. I think there's a lot of hope that, that comes with it that, hey, the brain is moldable and, you know, it can be reshaped. Which, you know, if you think about this topic, Michael, that one of the reasons that we have laws in place to keep addictive substances away from minors is because a minor's brain is much more moldable and shapeable. And, you know, the statistics tell us that 90% of people who are currently as adults addicted to alcohol, tobacco, or drugs, they started using their addictive substance before they were 18. Hmm. And so if somebody gets hooked on an addictive substance before they're 18, the chances that it becomes a lifelong struggle, go way up. It doesn't have to be a lifelong struggle. Man, but, and, and that's also why I really try to encourage, you know, the college students we work with. I mean, we work with, uh, you know, adults as well. But it's never going to be easier, man, to break this habit, this addiction that it is now. And so having that sense of urgency, um, you know, is really, really important. Yeah, that was one of the things I was going to ask. I'm glad you mentioned that is, um, we have, we have a friend who has been known to say to her teenage son, could you pre please use your underdeveloped prefrontal cortex to make good decisions? <laughs> um, but it, it's, it, it, that's an alarming reality of these, these brains that are still in development. And I think the most recent study I heard is, is it age 26? Yeah. 20, in, in 25, men? 26. That's why I don't rent you a car until then. You know, that is uh, unreal. Yeah. And we're, Wow. You, um, you you mentioned that the, the the brain can begin to repair itself. Are you saying then that that gray matter that shrinks is able to is able to come back through new patterns and new behaviors? Yeah, and there were there was a, a study that was published in National Geographic on the brain science of addiction uh, a few years ago, and they talk about that that a you know somebody who quits their substance for six months the the brain man gets back to more normal functioning uh and so man the brain is a gift um and man it it can be shaped but it can also be renewed um mm. and you know and again just the the mantra that man repetition will get you in repetition of new pathways will help get you out uh and so there's a lot of hope you know in understanding that and again, I, and I think this is a, a good example, Michael, that if, if, if a church or a person only addresses, uh, man, a porn addiction from the spiritual angle, the spiritual level, man, they're missing so much. Uh, and they're missing, you know, a big part of what the Bible says about how change happens as well. Um, mm. And so, you know, and I think that's, you know, that was, that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book was to help people appreciate that a holistic approach is a biblical approach. Um, mm. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, in Jeremiah 6.14, God rebuked his spiritual leaders, and it says, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. 
saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And so God is rebuking his spiritual leaders because, you know, they're, they're putting band-aids on issues or they're slapping the Christian cliche on issues that, man, there's a much deeper, uh, you know, solution that is needed. And, you know, and I think this brain science piece is one of those areas. Yeah. Well, man, I'll tell you what, the reason I, uh, uh, when I received the email, the reason I wanted you on is because of that integration of, you know, so many people see faith and science as oppositional to one another, but it's, it's so refreshing to hear what you are saying that these are actually fantastic partners, uh, when it comes to really understanding the, the truth around that. Um, I want to finish with, you talk about trauma at the end of the book, and you talk about this idea of healing from trauma. And and so as a way of concluding, for those who are listening, when you think about a path to healing, um, what are some first steps that we can take? And secondary question, um, could you talk a little bit about the use of the word trauma in relation to uh, people using pornography? Yeah. Um, you know, trauma is one of the six roots of a pornography addiction that we deal with and that, you know, just recognizing again, you know, if you think of the fact that when a person starts medicating their negative emotions, and that's when the addiction goes deep. Well, a lot of times those mm-hmm. negative emotions are attached to shame, which are attached to a trauma. And so a trauma you know, the, the way to evaluate a trauma, and I think it's important for people to realize um, there was a, you know, Harvard professor, you know, trauma expert, but he had a great, you know, statement. He said, the most harmful things we do to ourselves related to trauma, um, it's the lies that we believe as a result of the trauma. And so mm. and that's an important, you know, thing to remember because if somebody was abused when they were young, but, you know, that was bad enough, but when they believe the lie, man, this is my fault, or I deserve yes. this, or, man, God is done with me, or, you know, whatever the lie may be, uh, man, I can never get past this. Um, and so we, we teach people, you know, how to identify, hey, were there some traumatic experiences? And some of it may just be a dysfunctional, it may not be an event, but it may be a dysfunctional situation, but the lie that you've brought out of that is, man, I'm a failure, or I'm never going to be enough, or whatever it may be, because those are the lies, you know, that we begin to repeat to ourselves. we continue to repeat to ourselves as adults, um, and so, you know, really understanding that and how that feeds our negative emotions, that then we, you know, run to porn to medicate, um, and, and understanding that dynamic is, is, you know, really important, so um, you know, so I, I deal with that in the book. Um, and, and again, it's been, you know, it goes back to the truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And, you know, again, when Paul in Ephesians 4, when he was talking to the Ephesian Christians who were, were struggling with sexual bondage, uh, he talked about in terms of, man, the truth is in Jesus. Put away falsehood and speak truth one to another. Um, and so, you know, recognizing the, the, the lies that you're believing because of the trauma and replacing those with truth is important. And I would just say, you know, to any of your listeners who are personally struggling with, you know, pornography is 
you know, take that first step to come out of the shadows. Um, our, we have an online porn addiction recovery program that is free, um, mm. thefreedomfight.org. And so it's a six-month program. We encourage people to go through it in small groups. We have, you know, the leader's guide. We have all that. People can also go through it individually, and very early in the process, we will coach you up on how to get an accountability partner to go through the program with you because nobody finds freedom on their own. Um, you can start the process by yourself, but you're going to need to you know, have an accountability you know, early in the process. And so I would encourage you to take that first step. Uh, you know, go to our website. We have a 30-day challenge, which takes you know, different aspects of our program and condenses it into 30 days to give people, you know, kind of a taste and an introduction. Um, and so I would just encourage you, take that first step. The first, you know, step towards freedom is asking for help and confessing mm-hmm. and starting the healing process. And, um, and so, yeah, I would just, yeah, encourage, encourage anybody listening to know that freedom is possible um, this is a challenging addiction to break, but it can be broken. And God wants to, you know, help you find freedom. Yeah. And for those of you listening and you hear Ted talk about, um, you know, taking that first step, it's said within the addictions community, that first step of admitting you have a problem is always the most difficult. And so if you're feeling, whether it's butterflies or that tightness in your chest or that I don't know if I can do this, uh, just let me encourage you and remind you that is, that's the most difficult part is that first step. And, uh, but, but my prayer is that if you're, if you're feeling that nudge that you would. And so, Ted, um, you, you mentioned the freedomfight.org. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you? Yeah, and that would be the place to go, the freedomfight.org. Uh, and, and, you know, and I would say something about that first step. Um, you know, that's why we made our program free. You don't have to give a credit card. We only require somebody's first name and an email. And so you can be as anonymous as you want to be. And, you know, man, starting the, the program. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you can find our book online. It's also on Amazon and uh, Kindle and Audible. Um, and so we want to put these resources out there, you know, to help people find freedom because again, what we have found is people aren't just finding freedom. They're finding that they're able to run free, you know, and chase God and the purposes that he has for them. Hmm. Well, brother, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I I love that the first thing you said to me when we jumped on was I never, (laughs) I never thought I'd be a porn pastor. Um, (laughs) But man, thanks for that. Thanks for the work you're doing. Thanks for stepping into a space that, uh, as you pointed out, few people are are moving into, and for the the work that you've you've given yourself to. It's it's changing lives, and I appreciate that. Well, Mike, I really appreciate you having me on, man. It's been a joy. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. So, and thanks to all of you who've joined with us for another episode of the Changing Faith Podcast. Uh, my hope and my prayer, as as Ted already shared, is that we would all regardless of where we find ourselves, take a step toward freedom, recognizing and remembering our identity that is hidden in Christ. And so that is it for today. And uh, until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.